Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I've got romance. What have you got? Oh, I've got mystery and subversion and noir and a, a bit of a, th- well, a thriller in some ways. Now, books and art are dangerous and subversive things. Delving into Elizabeth Breyer's novel From Here On Monsters attests to why this is so. So, Elizabeth, welcome to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me. Now, there are several strands to your novel, and each raises concerns that become progressively more frightening as we go. Your protagonist is a rather innocent Cameron Raybould, a a young lady who runs a bookshop. It seems innocent and innocuous to me. Um, Yeah, so... What sort of character is she like? Uh, Yeah, so she's a bookseller. She's taken over the bookshop recently because her mentor has died. Um, Well, mentor committed suicide. Yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah, so I guess she's a little bit of a fill-in for the reader um, in that hopefully readers can identify with her in some ways. But she comes across a codex. She does. to, to look at books. She's got a knowledge of books and such like. And this is a rather interesting book. It has to be translated and authenticated, but basically we discover that it's part of the tales of Sinbad. And let's have a look at um, part of this translation because we find out that Sinbad might have come to Australia. The correspondences between, on the one hand, the tale of Sinbad as it appears in the Iberian translation and, on the other, European imaginings of the Antipodes are nothing short of remarkable. First, the Arab seafarers who were crossing the Indian Ocean and inspiring aspects of the Sinbad tale probably reached the landmass of Australia. Consider some of the details of the Iberian Peninsula translation. In all other versions of the Sinbad tale, the rock are giant eagle-like birds. In this translation, the rock are flightless, and they feed not on elephant-eating serpents, but on bird-eating spiders. There is an episode absent from other versions in which Sinbad encounters a trickster jinn. He surprises him on a riverbank, clutching a fish bent over in concentration. He is sewing onto it the bill and webbed feet of a duck and the tail and hide of a beaver. Uh, And there's also another... In the Iberian version, the monster receives a name, Banjib. This name contains echoes of a different storytelling tradition. Diachronic linguistics would suggest it's a corruption of the word. Bunyip. Did Sinbad reach Australia? There, There is speculation. Not So Sinbad is kind of um, taken from medieval tales brought back by Arabic seafarers. So there is speculation that they did reach Australia. Those details were obviously creative license. Um, <laughs> but you're doing it for a particular reason because yeah. there is something about the Sinbad story and the Thousand and One Nights. There is. What um, is well, I guess my interest in the Thousand and One Nights in part is this history of translation that it's had. So much of it or parts of it, certainly the Sinbad part, was actually made up by its translator. So it wasn't, it existed, but not as part of the cycle of 1001 Nights previously. But it's become larger than the book itself. 
It has, yeah. And this is part of the argument that starts to appear in your novel because art overtakes the reality or the the inclusions of editors and such like. Another strand then, because we've got the corruption of literature, we have a sort of corruption of art itself. Art is larger than life or life itself in that Cameron is asked to create words for the artist Madison Worthington, who's doing an installation. Um, And we get things like um, an indirect route becomes an optimised non-linear trajectory. (laughs) So what Cameron is asked to do is to corrupt things with words. She is. So I find this really interesting, especially thinking about, I guess, in the Australian media, the way we talk about particular issues. So, um, you know, you'll find that often refugee is not actually used. Instead, we have IMAs, um, illegal maritime arrivals. So there's kind of this this attempt to fudge reality or to fudge any emotional response to words because if we have this kind of bureaucratised language, it's it's much easier, I guess, to not to show any empathy towards what is being spoken about. Well, this sort of becomes very Orwellian in yeah. nature that you've then put in. But Cameron doesn't realise she's doing this. She thinks she's just contributing to an art installation. But then that notion that art is in fact misdirecting us. Literature is misdirecting us. We don't know the true story. Then behind all of this, you've got this noir aspect of mystery. You've got the sounds that are occurring. There's this sort of monster that might be appearing, people scuttling by. And there's an unusual shop across the way from Cameron's bookshop. What's going on here? Oh, that was a lot of fun, actually. I really enjoyed putting in all of those aspects. Um, but I guess I guess what I was trying to think about was how how this effort of fudging with language, fudging with art and life, how it can have this effect where um, where I guess we can unsee certain things, so we we see what we want to see. Um, and therefore don't see what we don't want to see. So I was kind of trying to gesture at that, I guess. (laughs) Well, it becomes this notion of monsters at the edge of the map, which sort of unites everything in this notion of Sinbad sort of thing, where we're frightened of what we don't know. Yeah, exactly. As, As the early sailors were. But then you've got several images going through this, and one is that, of mirrors and so um, how writing went from left to right but also it has its reverse in right to left and such like everything seems to have its reverse and even in the telling of this story Cameron meets now I'm going to have to get the pronunciation of this name correct John de Cuaza Mabah who is actually a refugee It's never said, it's never said, but we could assume that. We could assume that because... (laughs) Or an asylum seeker, at least, yeah. There's something going on in the building Mm -hmm. where the bookshop is housed. And it's John who actually provides the means by which the codex starts to be translated. Yes. But he's doing several things. This this discovery of what the, the... 
um, Codex is and how he goes about translating it, which you physically embody in the book. What's going on there? What are you? I guess um, I'm really interested in this idea of how form can reflect content, even though, you know, we could say that really they're not separate, that um, they're the same thing. But if we are talking about certain things, then then how can we reflect them in the way that we present them? So you physically do that in the book. You've got to turn yeah. the book side on yes. to read it. <laughs> and in many ways, that representation, and this is what John's doing, he's trying to get a true translation. But the mirror of this, then, is the corrupted translation we get of things as we tell stories which become more perverse as they go along. Um, so this is going all the way through this novel. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it was lots of fun <laughs> to, it, to try to nut out, I guess. <laughs> but how did you control it in many ways? Oh, very good question. Um, how did I control it? I guess it was through the process of redrafting. So um, I think it's really easy nowadays to think um, that we have to have a kind of that we have to be really productive, that, you know, neoliberalism, et cetera, makes us be really productive. But I kept thinking, no, I'm not going to refine this further. I'm just going to keep adding more ideas as they come. So, But the ideas connect. They do, hopefully. <laughs> they, so you've, you've got this notion of words. And, and yes. um, Cameron's got a friend, Dia, who's a journalist. But what's happening to her world? Well, she's being affected by the art project too. That's how I see it, but... Yeah, but sh- there's there are editing requirements mm. being imposed. Yes. on journalists. Yeah, so the words that Cameron thinks she's creating for an art project are actually somehow being fed back into um, society, into society, into the media, into politician speeches. And dear, the journalist can't use certain words. So at then one point in the novel, words start disappearing. From your story. They do. <laughs> and yet we know what they are, but we conveniently, they're not there, so we can't worry about them, mm. So, which, which is the Orwellian aspect. But, yes, that notion of, of reversal is there. Um, therefore, we come to the fundamental question, and I don't know how whether you can answer this. What are you communicating? What are you actually trying to say? Because... The refugees, in many ways, become the central issue here. They do, um, in a very kind of oblique way, I guess. But I guess I'm really interested in the past um, six years or so how it is as a society that we Australians have kind of been okay with this idea of what our government is doing with offshore processing. And so it's. I guess I was trying to think about how it is that we live with that kind of cognitive dissonance or whatever it is that allows us to keep living while that is happening. While that is happening. I think it goes beyond that in the sense that we are saying we are protecting these people. We're saving them from drowning at sea. Mm. Isn't this wonderful (laughs) of us? The fact that we're incarcerating them on an island and they gradually uh, go, well, um, mental uh, sort of breakdowns that are occurring to the point where they're committing suicide uh, would seem to fly in the face of that notion of we're saving them but we are satisfied with that line and Mm so we as a society accept that the picture has been painted 
what becomes so frightening, um, and this is a show about books, we put so much emphasis on the value of books and literature. We put so much emphasis on the value of art as things that inspire and create society. Here, they're doing the opposite. They are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, is that the overall fear? Is that the overall fear? I just, it was a way to bring it all together, but also I don't want to say, I feel like because where we writers are artists, often we kind of lord artists within the actual work. And I didn't want, I didn't want to kind of remove ourselves from that responsibility. So I think it is all of society. I did want to show that it's not that, oh, some people over here are doing okay. And you know, that we can just kind of but it's the innocence of Cameron, the simplicity yeah. of Cameron, who runs a simple bookshop, mm-hmm. and yet she is finding herself basically inculcated. She's almost a facilitator. We're all implicated. <laughs> We're all implicated. <laughs> we are. But she's facilitating it unwittingly, mm-hmm. as, as are we all in many ways. Mm. So this is the and, – and therefore this notion of from here on monsters, dare I ask the question, who or what are the monsters? That's a good question. I almost don't want to answer just because. <laughs> and, and I don't think you should because I don't think there is necessarily no. a direct answer to no. that. But that then is that noir aspect that circles this tale, mm-hmm. that there is a darkness surrounding it. it it's uh, fascinating, you know, the possibility of Sinbad coming to Australia. You've got quirky little things like using an eraser on a codex of an old manuscript to see because we can now date it and source it and we find it's made of kangaroo hide and things like that. Fascinating. But then, oh, that darkness behind it all, of of the corruption that's occurring. Look, Elizabeth, we're going to have to finish the interview there. It's a fascinating account. Lots for readers to think about and towards coming to the end in terms of what the monsters are. So the book is entitled From Here on Monsters, the author, Elizabeth Breyer. It is Picador Pan Macmillan release. So, Elizabeth, thank you for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm moving out of the darkness and into the warmth. Echo Springs is a northern New South Wales country town. It's a place where everybody knows your family. It's also the setting of Liesl Leighton. Leighton, I'm sorry, Liesl. That's all right. Dangerous Echoes. Well, welcome. And I do apologise about that name stuck <laughs> okay. up right Thank at the you. very beginning. Well, in Echo Springs, Erica Hansen has made a successful life away from Echo Springs. Why has she come back? Um, well, she has been, her brother stayed in Echo Springs to look after their grandmother and she hasn't heard anything from him for a while. Normally they, they communicate regularly and then she receives a very strange and confusing text from him and he doesn't respond when she asks him what that's about. So she ends up, after not hearing from him for a couple of weeks, she ends up deciding that she has to go and, and see what's going on. So she gets up to Echo Springs and it's not her grandmother she goes to see. She goes, actually, she just opens the door of what used to be her own house. And what does that lead to? It leads to her being arrested. Mm, mm. Arrest. No, just You'd think just walking like that, you know, you'd be arrested and taken down. But no, she's seriously handcuffed 
and kept at the station. So the arresting policeman has back history doesn't like Erica. No, no. Um, she, when she was younger, uh, got into trouble a lot. Um, she's on the autism spectrum, so uh, she didn't. She struggled to fit in a great deal uh, in in the small country town that that she lived in. And uh, she, her best friend um, Hartley uh, Cooper, he. Um, uh, got into trouble with her a lot, and uh, his father was the uh, the police officer, and so he very much dislikes Erica and dislikes that she's come back because she just see, he thinks that she's just trouble. Well, now Hartley is also a policeman, and he confesses to her when she returns. Quote from the book: he, uh, Hartley was in so much trouble he'd been grounded for a year. <laughs> so we know <laughs> that there was well, and I, I love this. They were friends. She called him Hearts and he called her um, Mischief. Yeah, Mischief, yeah. Mischief, yes. So will anything develop here? Well, not before a fire that brings two bodies and she goes above the orders of the superintendent. What does she do with these bodies? What's her, what's her business? What's her profession? Well, she's a, um, a forensic pathologist and when she discovers that one of the bodies is, uh, they think that it's her brother, she wants to know what happened to him and in small country towns they often don't have a, a coroner or somebody to do the autopsies and they have to bring somebody up from um, the, a, a big city and they aren't going to be able to do that quickly and that's not okay with her. Her, so she decides that she's just going to do the autopsy and, and nothing's going to stop her. Even though it's wrong, she can get yeah. into massive trouble, she can lose her job, doesn't care, she just needs to know what happened to her brother. So this is this is part of that driven need that she had mm-hmm. that, that she has to find out. Yes. And it doesn't matter, she can't read people very well. But uh, look, this is also a romance. Yes, it so is. So I'm going to get uh, Lisa Layton to read a little bit about... Hearts and mischief. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You kissed me, said Erica. I, he frowned, mercifully letting go of her arm and folding his arms across his chest. That's not how I remember it. Then you're remembering it wrong. She turned away, reaching out to push the green button to open the morgue doors. Erica, do you really think I kissed you first? She froze, hand hovering over the button. She She shouldn't look at him, and yet she couldn't stop herself. Yes. I remember you reaching up for me. You reached for me first. You opened your mouth to me. The kiss surprised me. He brushed his hand through his hair, the look of puzzlement increasing. If you didn't want me to kiss you, you could have just pushed back, said no. So could you. You pulled me close. You raked your hands through my hair. He was standing close again, gaze skipping down to her lips and back to her eyes. Her chest tightened, the hot prickling intensified. I'm not talking about this. You brought it up. I've got an autopsy to do. She hit the green button and fled through the opening doors. <laughs> it wasn't just the autopsy, but there was a lot of activity going on in uh, Echo Springs. There, she was she was being hounded. She was she. There was things happening to her life. She was being threatened, mm-hmm. and she was angry. And this is a little bit from the book. The cold fury was back. If they were dangerous, so she, was she. She was a box jellyfish, an eastern brown snake, a poison dart frog. 
They'd made the mistake of messing with her and now their time was limited. She would find them and she would make them pay. So who's the them that you're introducing to this? So there's a criminal element in the country town. Very unfortunately, a lot of uh, uh, country towns have drug problems. And um, this was one of the things that we wanted to explore um, when we uh, set out to, to write these novels um, and, and the impact of, of the drug trade um, in the small country towns. So there are um, some criminals who are trying to pass drugs through the, uh, the, the country town of Echo mm. Springs and um, her uh, looking into her brother's supposed death um, brings a lot of that to light. And so these people are trying to stop her from finding out more. Well, thankfully, Hartley Cooper is not the only policeman at the station. Mm-hmm. And Lisa Leighton is, Leighton is not the only writer. No, that's right. Because Echo Springs, Lisa starts it, mm-hmm. sets the scene, sets the crime, sets the, the people. And then what happens then? So then uh, the, the story gets handed over to uh, another author. Um, there's actually four authors in total. And um, we were asked by, our pub- uh, by a publisher to write um, uh, four novels set in a small country town in northern New South Wales that we could uh, – they wanted it based on Burke sort of uh, mm-hmm. area, um, uh, that, that similar kind of sized town, but we could make up – the town and situated where we wanted to in in northern New South Wales. Um, We could come up with our own uh, crime that would arc over the four novels and but they just wanted the novels to be set around uh, the police station and and the fire station so that meant that we had to have characters that worked in either of those two places. Right well we'll go back to Erica because she's handcuffed Mm -hmm. and nobody can find the key because uh, um, Hartley's father has conveniently left with the only key. Mm-hmm. So we have Constable Leela Main coming mm-hmm. in and she knew how to open the handcuffs with a hairpin. And maybe she was taught by her ex-boyfriend, Hayden mm-hmm. Terence. Now, how is his family involved? Uh, well, in um, the third story by T.J. Hamilton, um, we discover that he is from a family that has strong connections to the drug trade. And you realise they've got to be, I'm sorry about this, a bit of a bogan family mm-hmm. when there's three boys, Hayden, Jaden and Brayden. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> TJ, the writer, she was a police officer and so she was writing uh, quite a lot from knowledge that she had from uh, being a police officer in in New South Wales and dealing with a lot of the people who were involved in those, uh, you know, that that sort of area. Um, We tapped her a lot, each of the authors, for information about um, being a police officer and, and, yeah, it was a great source of information to have. (laughs) And then, because there's quite a few fires, there's you know mm. f- fires lit and fires accidentally because of uh, the meth labs and stuff that are going on. There's this very very handsome fit fireman, to- Toby Grimshaw. Mm-hmm. He's most competent at his job, but who is he holding a personal secret back from? Um, so his ex best friend Ben um, Strawberry Fields. So yeah. yeah. And that book, that whole story was written by Daniel DeLorme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Then Senior Constable Mac Hudson. Well, it's actually his the little sister of his best mate mm-hmm. that he um, gets to know very well. And that what that book is written by Shannon Curtis. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 
look, it must have been so difficult because I know uh, one of these authors lives over in Perth. Yeah, so yeah. So to get together to nut all of this crime and who who's going to have and expose which bit of yes. crime yes it was um it, it was a lot of fun to work together we created a, a bible shannon was the only one who'd actually worked on um, this kind of uh, novel creation before um the, the rest of us were were new to it uh normally you you write a novel and then you submit it to a publisher and then they decide if they're going to uh, mm. uh you know publish it or not this happened the other way around they came to us with an idea and we were contracted before the books were even written so um you know we we had definite deadlines that we had to meet and so we we created a a facebook group and communicated through that we had skype sessions and um yeah just talked a lot we had a bible that we created so every time we we came up with a place um or you know something we had a map of the of the town and um yeah and just had to add to the bible so that the others could reference it as well Oh, that's that's rather complex. That's yeah. kind of like doing research backwards. Yeah, that's right. I mean, normally I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm I'm known as what's called a pantser. Um, I usually just sit down and start to write, so I mm. don't have any concept of what I'm writing until I'm perhaps quarter of the way through the book. Uh, this required a certain amount a pantser, of, of right by yeah. the seat of your pants. Exactly Always right. Always on deadline. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, this one required uh, us to be able to sit down and write out basically what was going to happen in our novel and come up with character profiles and things so that the others who were writing their books at roughly the same time could work with that as well because, you know, they had to include elements of our plot or our characters in their books. So, mm. <sighs> Right. Well, Echo Springs, four different writers, mm-hmm. four different novelettes basically, but all following this crime line. Mm-hmm. And it's a very apt name as an echo has a returning sound and so do so many of the characters. Yes. They come back Mm. to Echo Springs. Yes, yeah. Yeah, oh. there's a big returning uh, motif in oh, the in is the there novels. ever? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've got it, you've... Um, Lisa Layton has also written another royal romance, uh, rural romance, Climbing Fear. But uh, most of your other books deal with um, a different element, not yeah. rural. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a cross-genre writer. I write uh, paranormal uh, romance as well as romantic suspense. So, um, yeah, I have a four-book series uh, called the Packbound series. Um, the second uh, book in that series, Moonbound, is actually uh, finaled in the Romantic Book of the Year Awards. Mm. So uh, that that's the biggest award for a published author in Australia who writes romance. So it's a fairly big thing. The Romance Writers Association—it's mm-hmm. a big thing too, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. It is. It's a, uh, a national organisation. We also have um, uh, members from uh, across uh, the globe as well. So, um, and lots of very strong ties within the Australian publishing industry and also abroad. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a big big organisation. It's a it's a great thing for romance writers, or you know, even if you're writing women's fiction um, that that touches a little bit on some kind of romance element uh, it's a really great organization to join this uh, so much that they give back to their writers they constantly have or oh, they have a conference every mm-hmm, year which, which is, is next week yeah very big mm. and uh, they always have professional um, teachings going yeah, on yeah yeah writing sex <laughs> yes yes yeah 
There's lots of that, you know, that there's there's professional business um, information, but also uh, writing skill set workshops as well that are held monthly. Um, they're online. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot. There's also a, a monthly newsletter and there's mm. Facebook forums and, yeah. And you were president there for a number of years. I was. I'm not quite sure how that managed to happen. But, um, uh, yeah, I was president for three years between 2014 and 2017. And uh, it was it was really, really great thing to be a part of. And uh, I made uh, a lot of uh, fantastic friends um, and a lot of great networking opportunities as well. Yeah. Right. Well, all of that. So we've been, <laughs> we've moved I had kissing too. We uh, have. <laughs> not too much sex though, because we had sweet sex. Um, well, they, they weren't specifically uh, sweet books, but we did have to have that conversation with the publisher to figure out what it was that they were wanting. So we were allowed to include sex within our novels, but it was up to us whether that was right for the characters or not. I My novels do tend to include sex, so I go. did have a sex scene in mine, but it is a it is on the lighter side of sex scenes. I, I, I can tend to um, be a little bit more explicit, um, not, not in the erotic context, always within character. Yeah. Well, there you have it all. So we've got we've got uh, David Chortling over there. But what I've been speaking with is Lisa Layton about her book with others, Echo Springs. And I had interviewed uh, Elizabeth Breyer about her novel from here on Monsters, which was uh, Picador Pan Macmillan release. Well, that's actually it. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, David. And 